Well, good morning. Great to be with you again this morning. I trust that this series through Philippians, Embrace Joy, has been uh, a, a source of joy to you. It's been an encouragement to you. Paul's been urging the Philippians to make sure that their manner of life, the way that they conduct themselves, is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in the verses that follow, he gave them two markers for that kind of life. One, that they be unified in spirit and in purpose, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And secondly, that they be fearless in proclaiming the gospel. The good news about the rule and the reign of Jesus in the face of opposition. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul calls the Philippian believers to consider five things that are true in their lives because they are in Christ. He begins with the word if, and we saw last week that Paul isn't using the word if to imply uncertainty but to invite reflection on five conditions of Christian unity that are with certainty true in their experience. So verse 1 could read, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, any comfort from love, and there is, any participation in the Spirit, and there is, any affection and sympathy, and there is. And then in view of, the truth and reality of those conditions, Paul says, then make the joy that I have because of you overflow. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing, he writes, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, Paul wants them to get over themselves, to get out of themselves, and and into selflessly serving each other. If you have your Bible open, you might see the word mind a couple of times there in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul wants them to be of the same mind, to be of one mind. And then in verse 5, he uses that word again and says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So notice, and we saw this last week, but just by way of review, notice there's, he says, be of the same mind, be of one mind, And have this mind. The same mind, one mind, this mind. What does he mean by mind? Well, the specific word he chose here means a mindset, a a general attitude, a, a way of looking at life, a value system. And he wants them to come together, think together, and come to agreement on the essentials of life. So again, the same mind, one mind, this mind. And which mind is this mind? It's the mind of Christ. 
And it's here in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians that we want to launch our thinking this morning. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to go ahead and begin at verse 1. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me before we continue? Father God, I pray this morning that by your spirit, you would come and and be our teacher. Lord, would you reveal to us what it means to have the mind of Christ and having that mind to serve one another. Would you help us this morning to see Jesus in a new way? Help us to understand this passage, we pray. Help us. Amen. Well, in verse 5, then, Paul begins, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm reading that from the English Standard Version, and to render the verse this way is to recognize that because we're in Christ, and because Christ lives in us, he's going to perfect his own image in us progressively and relentlessly over time. But this may not, in fact, be the best way to translate this verse. Some other translations read, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, which is, in fact, closer to the original Greek text. However we happen to read it, Paul wants us to know that when it comes to the conduct of our relationships in the community of believers as we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is our supreme example. There is no greater example of humility and servanthood than Jesus Christ himself. You know, there's a a movement today even in evangelicalism, to diminish the importance of Christ as the one and only sacrifice for sin, and therefore as our one and only Savior in favor of a view of Christ that presents him merely as our example. And it's true that Christ is our example, but he's never merely an example. He's never less than an example. He is always always more. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, if Christ is only our example, then we don't have a Savior, and we're still in our sin, still separated from God and without hope of reconciliation with God. Paul presents Christ as our example here in Philippians chapter 2, to be sure. But in doing so, he provides us with one of the most clear, one of the most powerful statements in the entire New Testament of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. In verse 6, we learn that Jesus is eternal God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, when Paul states here that in verse 6 that Christ Jesus was in the form of God, the word itself literally means being or existing. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's in the present tense. It it declares Christ's continuing condition. He is existing in the form of God. Our minds, ordered and bordered by time, can't even comprehend eternity, so... So we use expressions that help us, and two of those are eternity past and eternity future. Here, Paul wants us to understand that Christ Jesus was existing, is existing, was existing in eternity past. There was a day when Jesus was talking with the Jewish scribes and men from a sect of Judaism who call themselves Pharisees, which means separated ones. And in the course of a larger conversation, Jesus said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And listen to what he answered. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. See, Abraham had been dead for about 2,000 years at that point. Jesus claimed to have known him and to have existed before him. And in that declaration, I am, He was using the name of the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. That name means I am. I am the eternally existing one. The Apostle John began his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with 
God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. He was in the presence of God. The Word was God. Jesus is eternal God. All things were made through him. Jesus is the creator of everything. So Paul then adds that Jesus is existing in the form of God. And what did he mean by that? Understanding this word form is is actually one of the keys to unlocking Paul's teaching in this passage. It appears three times, once each in verses 6, 7, and 8. And the word form is translated from the Greek word morphe. And it, it means the essential nature that never changes. It's never altered. The NIV translates this phrase, being in very nature God. To say that Jesus existed in the morphe of God is to say that he is very God of very God that he bears the essential nature of deity. To the Colossians, Paul wrote regarding Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him. All things hold together. And in chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians, For in him, in Christ, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The writer of Hebrews said of Jesus, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, Whom, now listen, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Having established that that Christ is eternal God, and therefore equal with God, Paul goes on to say that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And again, what's he saying about Jesus? Well, this is what I think. I think he's actually saying something quite simple that the pre-incarnate Son of God had no need to grasp at equality with God because he already possessed it. You don't have to grasp at, at who you already are and what you already possess. There's a similar picture in John 13. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, and and John records this, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Just think about that. Because Jesus knew where he had come from and where he was going and knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, he was free to be a servant. He didn't have to grasp at his supreme authority as God. As God. He, he, he did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He had complete freedom to, to wrap himself in the garb of a servant and act as a servant to his friends. In verse 7, then, we learn that Jesus is not only truly God, but fully man. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, there's been a great deal of debate down through the centuries and and even to this day about just exactly what Jesus emptied himself of. And the fact is that the text doesn't tell us what he emptied himself of, so, so we don't have to fret about it. If we're reading in the broader context, we might say that Jesus emptied himself of everything that stood between himself and the cross. But instead, there are two participles there in verse 7 that tell us everything we need to know. And they are taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. There's that word form again. And again, the Greek word behind it is morphe. He, he emptied himself, taking the essential nature of a servant. To his disciples, Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the Son's equality with God led him to view his status not as a matter of privilege, but as a matter of unselfish giving. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Well, here's another key word, taking. Taking the form of a servant. So let's connect some dots. The the one who was existing in the form of God took on the form of a servant. As we attempt to understand what it meant that Jesus emptied himself, it might be easy to slip into the, the line of thinking that Jesus exchanged his deity for his humanity. But this word taking doesn't imply an exchange, but an, but an addition. See, the, the form of God couldn't be relinquished because God can't cease to be God. But he could and did take on the very form of a servant when he entered human life at the incarnation, at his birth. In Bethlehem, he who is 
Lord of all became the slave of all as well. So we're not talking about an exchange of deity for humanity. We're talking about adding humanity to his deity. The second participle makes clear that Jesus became part of humanity, being born, it says, in the likeness of men. And here's another key word, likeness. Well, what does it mean? Well, it refers to a basic analogy, a basic resemblance, but not an exact copy. It stresses similarity, but it leaves room for differences. In this way, Paul implies that that even though the eternal God became a genuine human being, there are respects in which he was not absolutely like other people, other human beings, because he was also fully God, and he never sinned. Listen to Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now listen, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He condemned sin in the flesh. When he went to the cross, he bore your sins and mine. And as a result of that, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in those who look to Christ, put their faith in him, and in what he accomplished there at the cross on their behalf. We read this in Hebrews 2, since the children have flesh and blood, speaking of humanity, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In verse 8 we see Jesus then as our Savior. Paul goes on, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here again, we encounter the word form. But this time, in fact, it's a a different Greek word that stands behind it. It's the word schemati. It's the word from which we get words like scheme or schematic. And it refers to outward appearance. Jesus was, was found in human appearance by others as a fellow human being. That's the way he looked. From an outward perspective, Jesus was, was no different than any other people. He, he blended into any crowd. The prophet Isaiah said of him, he, he had no dignity or beauty to make us notice him. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing that would draw us to him. He looked like just an everyday Joe. Being found in human form, then he humbled himself. Romans 5, Paul addresses the fact that sin entered the world through one man, and that man was Adam. And from Adam, sin spread to everyone. And in verses 18 to 19, he says, Therefore, as 
one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is our Savior. Well, to whom was Christ obedient? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To whom was Christ obedient? Well, he was obedient to God the Father. You know, sometimes we we can think of God the Father as kind of the bad cop and God the Son as the good cop. We need to be reminded that they're together in the work of salvation. In fact, as we read the Bible, really the, the work of Christ seems like it was the idea of God the Father. Jesus himself said to his friend Nicodemus, For God so loved the world. God loved the world in this way. He, he loved the world so much that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him, that is the Son, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world. Notice that God is the one who did the sending. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, we always and only tend to think about Jesus act of obedience on the cross. And and that moment did make all the difference. And yet from the moment of his, of his incarnation, from the moment of his conception, if you will, and his birth, he began a lifetime of sinless obedience to his heavenly Father. What made Jesus the perfect candidate the only candidate, the the only perfect sacrifice for the sins of all humanity was that he lived in our flesh, was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he never sinned. He was the perfect, unblemished, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The death that he died was no ordinary death, but it was the lowest, it was the most despicable most shameful, most disgraceful, most painful death of all. Death by crucifixion. It was the cruelest form of punishment. Death by crucifixion wasn't even allowed for Roman citizens. And to the Jews, death by crucifixion was considered an indication that that God had cursed that person. And in Paul's day, from a social perspective, death by crucifixion was the lowest one could go. When Paul adds the comment that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, therefore, he's taken the nature of Christ's selfless denial of his rights really to new depths. Christ went from the highest conditions imaginable, the highest position imaginable, to the lowest precisely because such selfless love was an expression of his deity, of his nature, 
as God. A pastor in Arizona whose name is Tom Schrader once made this insightful on-target observation. He said the, the problem most of us have is that our image of ourselves doesn't descend low enough and our image of God doesn't ascend high enough. So we need to pause and consider that that Christ descended as low as he did to save us because that is where he found us. In the depths of sin, far from God. You know, we don't like that thought. I remember a silly debate that was going on in evangelical circles when I was in college. It it originated in the clash between the self-esteem movement that was catching fire in those days and, and what came to be called worm theology. Worm theology. It, it was called that because it arose as a disagreement over a five-word phrase in the lyrics of a great old hymn written by Isaac Watts that was titled, At the Cross. And the first verse of the hymn began, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? See, Isaac Watts, the author, the the songwriter, seemed to have a healthy appreciation of his own sin and and his own depravity and, and an accurate recognition of the depths to which Christ had to go to accomplish our salvation. But the self-esteem cult wouldn't have it. They didn't think that anyone should regard themselves as a worm, and so they changed those lyrics to read, Would he devote that sacred head for someone such as I? I don't think it was an improvement. It was a denial of reality. It, it left to interpretation what someone such as I is really like. And we all think we're pretty good, don't we? I mean, we're legends in our own minds. The implication of Christ humbling himself and becoming obedient to the most horrific of deaths for our salvation boils down to this, that we are infinitely loved. We are infinitely loved. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only are we the recipients of the greatest love of all, but we are called in turn to the greatest sacrifice. In the final movement of this amazing passage, we see Christ as Lord of all. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of what his name represents, a time is coming when every knee will bow before him in recognition of his lordship, in recognition of his sovereignty. Paul is not saying, as the universalists do, that in the end everyone will be saved. That, that's not what he's saying here. The Bible never teaches that. As Paul wrote these words, he very probably had in mind the words of God through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45, verses 23 to 24. 
By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. And notice that adjective, every, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know what? Some of those who bow and and confess the Lordship of Christ on that day will do so with hearts filled with joy. And yet others will do so with shame and regret and absolute horror as they consider the eternity that lies ahead of them, separated from God. You will be among those who bow. And so will I. What will you be thinking and feeling on that day? Are you ready? Are you prepared? How have you responded to Jesus? In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, we hear him say to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, if there's anything that Jesus emptied himself of, it was his glory, the glory that he had with the Father in eternity past. And in John's vision of heaven in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, we read this description. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, for all of eternity, Jesus will be at the right hand of the the throne of God. And for all of eternity, those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation will worship him and celebrate his goodness. But remember now where we started this journey. We started with this command. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is our example, isn't he? And he is our example as eternal God as the one and only Savior and Lord who came to be our servant. And if we will follow his example, then we will serve one another selflessly, humbly, generously, sacrificially, 
until he comes. I look forward to that day. Are you ready? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Maybe today would be the day that that you would bow your knee and that you would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you would ask him to forgive your sins and to come into your life, that you would transfer your trust from, from who you are and your morality, your religion, your goodness, which will get you nowhere to the cross and what Christ accomplished for you there in his death and in his resurrection. I trust that today might be the day that you begin the journey of faith and that you would give your heart and your soul and your life to Jesus Christ. The Lord bless you, keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a great week.